Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of the 2016 Code Conference. If you like it, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Everyone here in this audience knows that we always talk about, especially in Silicon Valley, about we're always crushing it, things are always great. It is not always true. It statistically cannot be true. I want to talk about what happens when things don't work out. Uh, Dalton, Chet, Joanna, why don't you come on stage, we'll introduce you. Briefly introduce you guys. Joanna, if you saw the Steve Jobs movie, you saw a very fictionalized version of her. Kate, how, how, what do you think of the Kate Winslet version of you? Yeah, well, she's wonderful. She's an amazing good actress. actress, yeah. Uh, so you were at, among other things, you were at General Magic. And we yes. talk about that story. Yeah. Chuck Kenosia, uh, many of you know uh, as the former CEO of Aereo.com. We'll talk about that experience. You're now running Starry. That's right. Dalton Caldwell is now at Y Combinator. Previously, you ran iMeme, AppNet. Uh, something called Pick Please. I always get hung yeah. up on the pronunciation there. That's right. Okay. You got right. it. So again, thank you very much for, for coming on. Um, not a lot of people want to come on stage and talk about things that didn't, didn't work out. Um, but I want to talk to you about that. So th again, thank you. Um, I think we maybe just start by talking about what happens at the, when do you get to the point where you realize the thing you're doing is not going to work? The company you started is not going to work. The company you joined is failing. You need to leave. How do you get to that point, and then what happens then? So we'll just start with Joanna. At what point did you realize General Magic was not going to work? How many years into it were you? Uh, five years into it, and um, after the product shipped, actually. And no and, one bought it. And uh, no one bought it. Uh, well, you know, um, one of the reasons uh, that, uh, that no one bought it was also because by the time it shipped, we didn't have very much money for marketing. And what you saw in the film was, was me saying that um, I did not think that they should have introduced uh, the vision um, a year in advance and blown the wad. These are the companies that were our partners. We, were, you know, we, we weren't making our own device, so it was being made through, through OEMs. And they uh, essentially spent the, the, their marketing dollars on the announcement of their CEOs being involved with that vision. You know, this was the vision envy that everyone had in those days. But um, so you put five years of your life into this company, right? Exactly. What? What, what, what was? Do you remember the day you said, "I'm done"? Uh, yes, I think. Uh, you know, I had been. Uh, I was very disappointed that we were not able to 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 pivot toward the internet, and it uh, was pretty obvious that that was not going to be part of the equation, and so, um, you know, let me back up just one second, if you, if you will allow me. Um, the, the, you know, when you, when you fail like that, it's a, it's a cluster of decisions as well as circumstances. First of all, the circumstances were technological, there was no infrastructure, the, the battery uh, technology wasn't there, the CPU technologies weren't there, you know, so, so there were a whole host of things that, that were very much premature in a in technological sense. But one of the other problems that we had is that um, at that time, capital was very difficult to come by. And in order to realize this enormous vision, 
uh, you needed a lot of capital. And the way we chose to fund it is through, uh, through partnerships. And partnerships with AT&T, Motorola, Sony, Philips, uh, you know, uh, even IBM. All the large companies that are not into pivoting. Right. So you could see this coming. It's one thing to see it coming, and then one day there's a decision for you that says, there's been this yeah. cluster of problems, and yes. today's the day I go. Right. And, exactly. and at that point, is it easy because you've been seeing it coming for so long, or is it still a hard thing? No, it's still heartbreaking. I mean, for me personally, it was still heartbreaking because um, of all these individuals that you saw, and so, you know, um, at that point, I was already sort of a veteran because you know um, all, all these guys were uh, you know ten, ad, ad, ten years younger yeah. than, than than I was. Uh, so it, it, I, I felt a s profound sense of responsibility and for letting them down in their uh, enormous vision and drive and you know, all the hard work and everything else. So it, it was very difficult. It's, I, it, I didn't want to abandon ship. But it, at the same time, a, I was VP of marketing and there was just very little I could do. There was not, you know, it, 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 I was not um, useful at that point to the company, <laughs> I felt. So Chet... Supreme Court ruled against Aereo, very high-profile case, summer of 2014. It seemed very clear from the outside that you guys were done. Barry Diller, who had been funding you, basically walked away that day. But you kept going for several months. Uh, there were bankruptcy proceedings. You were trying to find some other way to keep the company going. Did you know in your heart that it was done and, and you were sort of going through the motions, or did you think you could save the company? <clears throat> no, no, no. I think so, uh, you know, we started the company with a very specific focus in a binary switch, which was either we're going to win and it's going to make everybody really, really happy. And you knew you were going to end up in the Supreme Court one we, day. Yeah, that was the start day one. We knew that was what we were going to do. And, uh, and, and you know, we, we ran the company that way. Uh, I used to tell every employee that, you know, don't count on a job in 18 months or whatever it is when uh, we would hire. And whenever we took investment, we would tell people that, you know, now's your time to pull back out. Uh, no harm, no foul. Uh, because, you know, the, the mission of the company was break up the cartel, right? That had nothing to do with anything else. And just for context, the, your idea was we were, I don't want to get into the legality of it, but you were going to take uh, TV broadcasts over the airwaves right. and distribute them over the internet without paying people for that, right? Um, the Supreme Court ruled against that. So you, you told people that this, there's a high likelihood this thing will fail. It's one thing to tell them that. It's another thing to pull the plug. So you were going, after the Supreme Court ruled against you, you were still trying to make the company work in some capacity. So uh, as a CEO, my job, uh, I mean, you have a fiduciary responsibility to, to your employees and, and more importantly, your shareholders to maximize whatever you can for them. And so, you know, there was a lot of interest in buying the company just because it was an incredibly talented team. And... Uh, and you know what we accomplished is technologically speaking in a period of 18 months i mean the company was only around 3 years was immense so there was a desire on my part to keep the team together there was a bunch of interest in acquiring the company and we went down the wire with a bunch of acquirers and and the challenge we kept running into there was no way to take the money out of the shell and it was substantial amounts of money and so when we realized that after like because the networks were suing you when they wanted those assets it's, I mean, the settlement at the end of the day was like six, eight million dollars, something in that range. But it was just going to be a, you know, a process. And if a certain amount of fatigue had set in and, uh, you know, both Diller and myself and all the investors were like, look, it's better to do something more interesting than to try to just return capital. And uh, so that was my responsibility was to, to try to accomplish that, which is what I was trying to do. 
And, and so you, you shut down the company, but you were telling me that basically the same day, within 24 hours, you went back and rehired most of the, the people who had been working there right. and then went back to your old investors and said, I'm starting a new thing. Right. So there was no gap for you. There was no gap. That, I assume that made it easier to leave the, the old thing. Uh, well, personally, it, it does make, I mean, I'm the type of a person that I've, I have, you know, I'm com- I mean, there's a compulsion to build stuff, right? So, so that, uh, and it was arguably an incredible team. And I think incredible teams for me is, you know, very, very, very artists in their discipline. And in particular, in our case, we were doing software, hardware, RF, uh, and consumer experiences, design, marketing, all those th- kinds of things. You know, and those teams are just amazingly difficult to put together. And it was a great, talented group. And I sort of said, you know what, it's, I'm going to do something again. And for me to take a year off, which you know, I was in a position to do or you know, chill out for a while, but a lot of people weren't, it was unfair if, to them. And we all loved working together. It was such a tight-knit uh, group of uh, folks. So, yeah. You basically rehired the, the entire existence. Did anyone say, I would rather not work at a high-risk startup again? Um, all startups are high risk, right? It's just nature of the beast. Aereo in particular was designed to be, you know, a step function. Either there was going to be billions of dollars or it was going to be zero, and that was, we were okay with that. Um, yeah. a, a few people, we uh, said, you know what, I'm tired and I, I want to go somewhere else, I, or go to Hawaii and move and things like that. There's certain people we didn't want to take. So I think we took about 25 or so to start, um, and then... We're about 70 people, 65, 70 people now, and I think half are probably ex-area. So Dalton, how, how did, do these stories sound familiar? Uh, you were at iMeme, which is an early music streaming service. At one point, it raised a lot of money. Yeah. Like many uh, digital music services, didn't work out. <laughs> I don't recommend those. Uh, yeah. Although one of them finally seems like it's working. I think the jury's still out on that. I don't know. You're, you, you know more about it. Than they haven't made any money yet, but yeah. it seems like they might be able to one day. I think that um, when you're running a startup, you constantly have near-death experiences, and near-death experiences are part of the game. Um, think about how many times Tesla almost died, and we know about that one. I think if you know the real story about any eventually hugely successful startup, there's always a point, or several points, when they're just this far, where if the coin flip would have gone the other way, boom, they're dead. And I think to make it to a late stage as a startup, you have to succeed and win that coin flip a number of times, and what it feels like to fail at a late stage is that you actually kept winning the coin flip. You kept, things kept going your way. And the time when you do fail or the time when you realize the company is over is when you, you have a near-death experience and the patient doesn't make it. <laughs> I think a VC told me that once. You know, we lost the patient. So what uh, was that moment for you at IME? Um, again, in retrospect, from the outside, it seemed like, oh, this is a failing company and you guys are going down the hole. But you were kept at it for a while. I think there... Uh, one of the things we talk about in Y Combinator is that the two things that kill companies are um, running out of money and the founder giving up. And most of the time, it's the latter. And so I think when you lose hope, when you see no other path, both of the folks on stage just talked about it, it's actually hope that sustains you through these near-death experiences. And I think I got to the point personally, and I think my investors did and the board did and the employees did, where it felt like how many more near-death experiences do we need to get past for this to be worth doing. And it started to feel less and less, it just, it started to feel almost ridiculous to continue to deal with the complications around licensing, around uh, lawsuits, and the same stuff the current music streaming services are dealing with. They're constantly being sued by the publishers. They're constantly, you know, huge campaigns against them. And it, it started to feel ridiculous to us. 
And I think that was a big turning point. And the other thing is, look, I see companies fail every week on the inside because at Y Combinator, we fund hundreds of companies. And so at this point, I know exactly what it looks like from the outside. And so much of it is when the team loses faith, when they no longer believe the fight is worth fighting, that is generally where um, gravity will pull you back to Earth. But is there a gap between, you know, people are leaving, uh, your old investors aren't returning your calls, but you still are continuing to, to run the company? You sort of, I, I, in, my, in my mind, I sort of imagine you as the sort of the, the roadrunner over the cliff, yeah. right? But For sometimes it works. That stuff totally happens. And sometimes the person pulls it off, and then everyone that you know, turned their back on them is like, oh, we were wrong. Huh, just kidding. We, we were rooting from you silently from the sidelines. You know, those kinds of lines come out. And, and look, the history is written by the winners. And a lot of different folks that have been hugely successful, huge companies have had those tough periods um, where they are the roadrunner running off. But magically, they find another, you know, they hit the road again. And, Good for them. So one of the stories that, that, that Silicon Valley tells about itself is that it celebrates failure and it likes the idea that things don't work and then people pick themselves up again. Does that actually map out? Does that actually map with reality or is there a stink or whatever the metaphor I, I is? I think there's some subtlety there. I think certain kinds of high profile failure um, aren't necessarily celebrated as much and we can talk about what that means, but garden variety failure, which is I tried something, I did my very best. I exhausted every possible resource at my ability, and it didn't work. I do think is respected. Again, just like a stat from Y Combinator, 40% of the people we fund had previously applied and been rejected. And so the people that we actually fund on a forward basis are people that previously we decided not to fund. And that's, that's the case with every aspect of, of funding and who you choose to work for. It's not like your damaged goods if your first thing didn't work or we didn't think it worked. It's having the grit and determination come back is something that's celebrated. And again, there is, a, there is some subtlety between that and like, holy cow, um, what a mess that was. That is not necessarily uh, celebrated to the same degree. And Chet, you were saying your investors all came back basically um, the day after you shut down the company. Did they come back, they were, you know, poured giant amount of capital. And, and, and you know, our case was very different in, in a lot of ways because it was designed to either, you know, be a binary outcome. And, uh, and I think what we got judged by was did these guys build a great product? Did they pull off what they said they were going to do technologically? And you know, and I'm very proud of my team in that sense. We were good at understanding kind of where the trends are going to collide, and then building a product very rapidly around in complex products, not you know sort of a silly app somewhere, right? And uh, and we're all mission-driven people, right? So even Starry now is its you know ambition is we're going to build a multi-gigabit wireless ISP for U.S. and then ultimately in multiple countries. Or beam internet to me. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, those uh, for, you know, we're all driven by fairness in the marketplace, good products, uh, great design, and doing something that's going to move the needle. And in uh, those things, you know, and the, the only claim to fame we have is we get it done, right? And we have sort of as a group that reputation in the market that if there's a complex product to build, these guys can build it. So for us, uh, you know, my company prior to that, which Microsoft acquired, and, and it was great to see Bill on stage, and I think every time I see him, my respect sort of goes up. Um, you know, that was a series of near-death experiences, uh, and I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, we were down the wire, and we were going to get acquired by Google at one point, and, uh, you know, I just didn't like the interaction that we had, and I walked out. And, uh, you know, that was 
my VCs stopped showing up for board meetings after that because they were like, you know, this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing or whatever it is. And we literally, you know, pulled off a triple X exit after that uh, a year and a half later. Um, so I think uh, this is, I mean, we know how to sort of grind stuff through and, and get it done. Um, but uh, Jim, I want to ask you this question. You had sort of a nuanced answer to it when we were talking before about sort of whether, whether or not you're allowed to get a second or third chance. Well, I think you are allowed to get a second and third chance, that's for sure, and the examples are many. But um, I, I think it also very much depends on uh, what you drew out of that experience, right? Um, so uh, being on the hiring end of people who have come to me with, from failed companies and, uh, and uh, applied for a job, for me that was never a demerit. You never say, but what, what was a demerit is listening to their reasoning. And so, uh, and it's the same for everybody else. Um, um, uh, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, well, this company failed because of these circumstances, and there is no self-reflection, there is no, uh, uh, no, here is what I was responsible for, here's what I did wrong, this is what I would change, or um, now I understand which factors lead to, you know, what are the conclusions you draw out of the experience? And that's very important because very often what happens is that, and the people who succeed are the ones that draw the conclusions, but what happens very often is you get the, the, the people who come and immediately start the blame game, right? It's, oh yeah, it was, I blame this, I blame that, and, that, and there were no personal um, rich conclusions that they drew out of that experience. So how, how you learn is very much a function of whether you will be appreciated for your past failures uh, or you won't be. So, so there is that nuance. Just because you were a part of a failing uh, endeavor doesn't mean you learned anything from it, right? So. Um, we talked a little about what Chet did next after, after you just didn't pause. You just went right to the next thing. Um, Joanna and Dalton, when, when your project, your first projects, or the projects we're talking about here didn't work, what was the next step for you? Did you, did you retreat? Did you say, I'm going to take time off? Did you go, I, I have a thing I want to do as well? Well, you have to uh, take into consideration that I think we were all at a very different stages of, in our lives. Uh, for me, this was, again, you know, I always loved being at the bleeding edge. So this was, uh, if I count properly, my fifth one that didn't work out. And I include the Macintosh in that, by the way, because after the first 100,000 that we sold, you know, a huge disappointment. One of the things that was true in the Steve Jobs movie is that the first Mac was not a success. Well, not a success after the first 90 days, yeah. No. So, so you know, um, this was one of many things that I had done which, where I got enormous personal satisfaction out of it because I love being at that hairy edge of excitement of the new technology and so on, but, um, and the enormous risk. But uh, it, 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 I... This was my big push yet again. And uh, after that, I decided to retreat for a little bit. I was at a different stage in my life. If I had been, uh, uh, I don't want to put it all on age, but if I had been you know, five years younger or whatever, I would have probably gone on and done yet another Jumped thing. Jumped in right away. R jumped in right away. But at that point in my life, I thought I would rather work in the more uh, nonprofit um, area and more for causes rather than products, at least for a while. So Dalton, you sold Imi Moff to, to MySpace. Yep. This is so long ago that MySpace was still a thing. <laughs> um, sort of. Was there a consideration that you would go with the company, or were you, you done? 
Yeah, I, I, there was a whole mess around that. That was right, like, that was when Owen was running the company and I was gonna work with Owen, and then Owen right as it was about to close, then Owen was out, so it was kind of a mess. Um, so yes, the intention was to go with the company, but because of internal stuff at MySpace, I didn't end up going. So I ended up starting another company. And what was the gap between not going to MySpace and starting the next company? Weeks, it wasn't very long. I was like, well, I guess, <laughs> guess I should start a new company. I didn't really think too much about other stuff. I, at that point, I was really focused on wanting to get back to writing code and building products after running a larger organization. And so that's the itch that I wanted to scratch. It's, it's pretty hard to imagine, because I've talked, yeah. I didn't talk to Joanne at the time, but I talked to both of you guys at various times as things yep. were going south, and you look bad, right? You, <laughs> running a company is hard, running a failed company is, is very hard. You both look like you've been beaten up. It seems like you should take some time off and yeah. rest and probably eat better. And um, <laughs> Doesn't anyone give you that advice, like just chill out for a minute? Yeah, I mean, there's reasonable aspects of that advice. It's just, and I thought that that was going to happen. Like in my mind at the time, I thought I was being set up to chill out at the time. But like I said, I, you know, because of the way life works, I ended up where it all worked out to start another company again. And that felt right in the moment. Um, I think it's the same with him. Yeah, I, I, you know, for me, I'm, um, I, I guess, you, you know, for me anyways, very personally, my work is a really integral part of my identity to myself. And... Uh, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, I don't know. Uh, but it took me a long time to recognize that that's what it is. And unless I'm doing something really interesting, tough, complicated, it just is not satisfying. So, um, in an, and after I'd sold my previous company to Microsoft, there was a period of about a year where I was just relaxing in the sense, I still had a job at Microsoft working through the transition and everything else. but. It wasn't terribly satisfying, and uh, I realized I was, you know, not happy. Uh, my my identity, who, how I think of myself, how I think of, you know, I, and I sort of jokingly say this: after I turn 40, I'm playing the back nine, and I want to make it count. I, I really need to uh, put up a, you know, a low, big score, um, and it's kind of how I was raised. So, so that that notion of, of scoring and, and the size of the score is important to you, Dalton. I remember talking to you after you'd raised money for what was then called Big Please. Yeah, it was five million bucks. I think was the was the number. Yeah, it was a big number, and it gave you a big valuation for a you know basically oh, really? a nap. What it, it was, a, it was a, the thing that struck me was you saying, "Well, if I'm going to do another company, I want this to be a big, big, big success." there's a rational argument for you could have taken less money and you could have been successful with a smaller exit. And you said, I don't want that. I, I want this to be a home run. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. Um, do you guys all, did you guys all have sort of similar reactions? Uh, so to I, I, I never count money. Is, is personal view for me. Is that's an out, I mean, it's great to have money and, uh -huh. and you know, go to nice places, buy fancy shoes. And you, know. and you made a bunch of money. I made sale, a bunch too. of money. I've been fortunate about it. Those are very um, expensive but shoes. <laughs> they look like expensive. The, uh, for me, it's a, you know, moving something, a big boulder up, which nobody is either capable of, wants to. I mean, you know, the value, I don't live here or operate in California, but it's, it's on the East Coast. But, you know, you talk to a lot of venture capitalists or people here, you know, nobody really has the appetite. They don't think of, I mean, it's probably Tesla and SpaceX are the two that shine as, as companies that are focused on really moving the world forward. And I think that's reflective of the founder. Uh, but, you know, that's fun. That's interesting. That's like, you know, I, I always live my life as a what do I want on my tombstone? And the tombstone's got to be, you know, badass 
and you know somebody who wasn't afraid of you know uh, building something big and meaningful. I just I think it's important to set intention, and I think implicitly, if you're like, eh, I'm going to do something and I'm not going to take any risks, you're actually setting yourself up for a huge disappointment. It's, if it's worth doing, in my opinion, it's worth trying your very best and having as open-minded. But there's a middle ground, right? If you what say, you I, 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 I want to make this work, but it doesn't need to be a billion dollar, what, however you measure it, it doesn't need That's to so be a world-changing company. That's so hard to set intention. I, it's, like, it's like saying, oh, I want to, you know. I mean, I work for people who said, well, our plan is to be number two or three in the market. Oof. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 to pick up on your point is that um, I have rarely seen, uh, uh, at least in, in, in the tech world, companies succeed who have gone in there with the uh, intention of, uh, uh, of achieving a substantial financial goal. Uh, at least in my experience, it's always been people who really want to make a difference. It's, it's, it's the cause almost. It's almost the cause rather than the, uh, the, uh, the details of, the, um, of how you're going to make that a financial success. And the, by the way, financial success sometimes comes and sometimes doesn't come, right? But there is a sense of profound satisfaction in working on something that you think is going to be incredibly meaningful and huge. So uh, for me, after I left the profit world, I was interested in the environment and the fact that we could make the air in California cleaner and better and our, reduce our car carbon footprint. So, you know, that, that you, if you, there are different types of people and some people set themselves the goals of really uh, difficult goals and projects and, and they thrive on that, fully known that you may fall on your face. But you told me that you personally are looking to do things where that you know that you'll be able to, the, the odds of achieving something are higher because that's what you want to spend your time on. Now, as, as I business. age, yes, as I age, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely the case. But when I was young, um, you know, it's uh, what I would I would encourage people to in their youth to if this is the thing that makes you tick, always take the uh, the path of the, the huge something that make could make a huge difference, right? But fully well acknowledging the fact that you're you're going to probably fall on your face, and if you're the type of person that that if you fall on your face, you're going to to really get. Uh, um, you know, damaged by that, and uh, you have to know yourself, right? It's all so individual, right? Don't you think? The reality is, you are not going to take money when you die, right? The pharaohs tried this thing; it didn't quite work out for them. And so, why bother? I mean, you, the the thing you'll probably get when you die, hopefully peacefully, is going to be you want you that did cool something tombstone. interesting, and you're you know you were good to your family and and your children or spouse or whatever that happens to be, and you lived you know good good life and and. That's far more important than whether you know you made another you know ten million bucks or, or a billion or whatever the number happens to be. I have more questions. Let's see if anyone in the audience wants to ask you guys. This is a rare opportunity to talk to some pretty cool folks. Um, doesn't this all revolve around the evolving definition of success? Do you want to you want to tease that one out a little bit? Um, well, I came up as several of these guys uh, around the world where changing the world and inventing something that's important, and there are several people on the panel who certainly reflect that, is a success. And it doesn't have to do with money per se. 
And it feels to me, pardon me for speaking too long, it feels to me like people have lost sight of what success actually means. I, I tend to agree with you that in vast parts of the world, make, you know, changing, creating, inventing is valued far more than um, how much, you know, what do you have in your bank account. Uh, it's, if the outcome is that it comes with something in your bank account, awesome, right? And you give it away or spend it, do whatever you want. Dalton, you're on the front line. You get a new crop of startup yeah. founders every couple of months at Y Combinator. Do they want to change the world or do they want to do something that's less ambitious than that? Uh, they, I think they definitely want to change the world. I they, think that's something. They have to say that, right? Do they mean it? I think. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of them, so I can't speak for everyone, but generally, yeah, that's what would make, it's kind of an irrational decision to start a company. In a lot of ways, it's a very irrational decision, and so you, would, you need to have that core fire and belief to want to do it. Um, and, and I agree with the question. I mean, like, how we, give, how we define what success is and how we give ourselves meaning in our lives is very important. And it's up to you to solve that internally. Okay. External validation of your success, external validation that you did well at something, um, if that's what you're feeding on, you're going to end up being a pretty empty person someday. And so I think it's up to everyone, whether they're successful or not, to come to terms with what gives them meaning in their lives and decide for themselves if the stuff they're doing makes sense. And like, that's a tough place to be. And before somebody <laughs> says that that's like, you know, that's loser talk, I mean, the, the, it was, I went through a, you know, post loss and, and uh, I was talking to Barry and, uh, and I said, I'm really sorry. And he was like, no, 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 you, 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 you told me what you wanted to do. You set out and you did it. And you did it exactly how you said you were going to do it. And you changed the industry and you, you know, moved things forward. And I think that's a massive success. And so it was, I'm lucky that I have, you know, people that are close to me that validate that. But I just wanted to address what you said, the changing, um, uh, definition of success because I was just talking to a few people here who run companies and now have millennials working for them and the their definition of success is different than it was for for certainly for me and probably for you too uh, and that is that uh, they were saying they really want the life work balance we talked about that before somebody mentioned harmony is a better word than balance but it, it's a little bit different because I think in my generation, we never talked about that. You guys uh, were sleeping at the office. We were sleeping at the office, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, the people who, who did have families and had to run to them, um, you know, they engendered quite a bit of resentment. Like, it was a choice. You decided to have a, a kids. Why, why, why are you leaving so early? <laughs> so, but, uh, but things are different. Even young people appreciate the fact that there is, has to be a certain balance. So I, I would say that the definition of success has changed. Um, and I'm not sh quite sure that uh, I think if I, th to this day, because you know I did have kids, I feel kind of apologetic about the fact that I did have to take the time. So, you know, I haven't gotten used to that idea. But these younger people clearly have a very different sense of personal success. Tell my kids. Um, Hi, here. Craig, Craig Foreman from Next News Ventures. And I'd like to first congratulate you. This is a difficult topic, and I think you've had a very interesting discussion about a, a lot of different issues. Hard to do. 
My question is, uh, some of you may have been here when Jeff uh, Bezos on the first night talked about his way of evaluating when to sort of fold the cards. And all of you as general managers and as executives, I myself as an investor, general manager type, I think we know uh, subjectively when we walk in, I think you mentioned it, you can sort of feel, I won't describe it, but you can feel the failure in a place that is on the edge of failure. But he said it's when the last high value champion folds the cards. What, what for you is your best objective uh, criteria for when it's that moment of knowing that things are over, as opposed to subjective? Let's do a speed round. Let's, when, when, is, when, is, when, when, when does that bell ring? Um, why don't you start at that end? <laughs> because I'll have it's, to think it's about not objective, that. but when you when you talk to the team, when you talk to the founders, and they're demoralized, that that word demoralized, the idea of folks that give up hope, and you ask them, well, what are you going to do, and what's the plan, and they're like. You know, that's, that's when you know, <laughs> um, when, they're, when they're out of ideas, essentially. Chet? Uh, it, it's a difficult, I've never been exactly in this because the, the spectacular failure I had was purposeful, right? It was very binary in that, in that sense. Uh, but, but it's interesting, uh, you know, I think I love that comment that Bezos made about, you know, when the last high value person. The problem in startups is that's you, the founder, CEO, whatever the notion happens to be, because VCs are wonderful when things are growing great, and they're meddlesome and useless largely when things are not going great. You know, I've had board meetings in which I've gotten advice like, you know, we were going to do 10 or $15 million on, on something in revenue. And they're like, well, how many salespeople is that? And I was like, with 15 or whatever the number was. And they were like, well, why don't we hire 50 more and then you'll do 100? And I'm like, are you retarded? I mean, like, where did you come from? Uh, that's not how life works. So the problem in startups is that, at least this is sort of my personal psyche, you know, you go to bed one day and you are, you're absolutely convinced this is wrong, this is wretched, this is stupid, it's never going to work. And you wake up the next morning and, you know, you get one little piece of news from somebody uh, whether your team or whatever, and suddenly the sky is blue and bright, and this is awesome. All things are going to get realized. It's it's such a roller coaster, and you know I, I think the the teams that understand that and understand that you know go to bed, it's going to be okay tomorrow. Join and one too. of my co-founders uh, says this: like there's some days you shouldn't come to work, and it's okay because it's it's shitty. Should we let Leah, or do you want, do you want to? I, I would say that, uh, you know, uh, getting the temperature of, of, of your team uh, and the, the fact, if, if, when you have to be the motivator uh, and uh, you find it difficult to be there, uh, to find all the reasons to resurrect, uh, as you see, you, to go with your near-death experiences, when, um, when you yourself are in that position, then it's... Uh, and you know. And you know. When you are one of those, you know, the, the, the last ones with the cards, and you are about to fold, then you know there is no one else left to pick it up. Uh, because if you don't feel like coming to work one day, and you know that there is somebody to pick up the cards, there is one, at least one more enthusiastic person there, that's okay. But if there isn't, and you're the one... So it's an easy answer when there's no one left. Uh, Lee, real quick. Chet, you've mentioned this binary by design question. There are a lot of other companies who have an existential legal question that is the basis of their business today. Lee, should Uber we talk Airbnb. about where you worked last? Uh, we don't have to do that. Okay. Um, but my question to you is in contrast to these others, should other companies be doing more 
binary by design? Should they be testing the market through the legal and regulatory system? Or should uh, they be uh, so I, th I think that the challenge, and by the way, uh, one comment on, uh, before I, uh, on civics, you know, absolutely loved Elon's talk. The one thing that he did not mention in the small rudder for a big ship analogy with the president is that the president does appoint federal judges, including the Supreme Court. And in this country where the legislature is largely frozen from a you know, rulemaking perspective or new laws, the courts are running the country, effectively speaking. So you, you really do need to pay attention to, to kind of who gets in or not. So to that point, I think Washington, it is so arcane, and, and I got a crash course in lobbying, and you know, if you think the Supreme Court isn't lobbied, you're, you're silly because the courts, everybody's lobbied heavily. Uh, the, the system is absolutely arcane. They are still applying stuff that was written in 1937, and you can have a constitutionalist view and say you don't, but I think for certain things, statutory reform is absolutely necessary. Copyright is one area in which that is important. Telecom is another area where these things are, need to move forward. The question is how, uh, you know, how do you move that forward? We are not a set of group of people that are going to go petition the government. That's not how our system works, right? We're not gonna, you can't influence a rule in Washington, right? Comcast gives $10 billion, or whatever the number happens to be, probably not 10 billion, but a substantial, I'm not picking on Comcast, every company is in the same boat. So how do you test, how do you, as a new entrant, do something? And uh, I think testing the boundaries is probably the only way you have to do it. You have to do it in a legitimate, interesting way where you do think you have an opening, as, as we thought in Ariel's case, and we won all the way to the Supreme Court. The reason you have to be very thoughtful, and sometimes I, get, I cringe when I hear crazy ideas. Uh, people you know, think I'm you know, the cowboy of all copyright things, right? So the reason I cringe is because you can make really, really bad law by making a stupid argument. And so, so if somebody's going to do it, you really have to, you know, get an army of, of lawyers and, and get it well capitalized because it's not, it's, it's not trivial. And, and you will do yourself and the rest of us a huge disservice by creating bad law, which has happened in particular in the Ninth Circuit in, in, in Com. So would you do it again? Would you force it to a decision or would you come up with a way to plan around it? Uh, oh, absolutely. I don't think we would, I think we would probably amplify what we had done um, by, uh, you know, I think we wanted to end up in the Supreme Court in five years. We ended up in three. That was probably the one thing that, that we lost. We couldn't control the clock anymore, but yeah. Great. We're going to leave it there. I really want to thank you guys. This is not a discussion we normally have. Um, I think everyone appreciates uh, and your candor and courage for coming on up here. Thanks again. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, where Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at Recode.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.